0: Good evening. Hello and welcome to the South Bank Theatre, to the Lawler. My name's Chris Mead. I'm the Literary Director of Melbourne Theatre Company. Thank you so much for being here. Um, There's a few little housekeeping items I need to cover off before we continue. One of the first things is, and don't be alarmed, but we're recording this session. It will become a podcast later on which you can review at your leisure in any any time you so choose.
1: Unless my microphone falls off. Yeah,
0: that could be a problem. Then we'll
1: just record you.
0: Okay, that would be boring. <laughs> that would be quite good. Uh, now, what else do <laughs> I have to tell you? Um, oh, and Simon is here as a guest uh, of the University of Melbourne, the McGeorge Fellowship. Uh, they're a fantastic couple who left their house and some money to the university. And have uh, because it was a place of uh, lively arts discussion, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to bring brilliant artists from around the world yeah. to Australia. Welcome, Simon Stevens. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have to let me
1: know if my microphone's working, because it totally fell off, because I'm an amateur. Is that all right? Thanks, Josh.
0: He says he's an amateur, and yet he's also (laughs) the author of 29 plays. He's the recipient of both Olivier and Tony Awards for his adaptation of Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. He's the recipient of a TMA Award for his play Prunk Rock. For the Critics Circle Award of Scotland for On the Shore of the Wide World, another Olivier Award for On the Shore of the Wide World, <laughs> the Tron Theatre Award Best New Play, uh, and the Pearson Award for Best New Play for Port. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's quite nice. I'm quite... Carry on. Okay. It's quite, yeah. um,
0: <laughs> uh, and also, you will get your chance to ask questions. We'll try and stop chit-chatting about 15 minutes to go so you can uh, fire over your questions, which I'm sure you have. So you can start thinking on, on them now, although I might give you a little <laughs> warning if you get closer because I run out of questions, yeah. which I probably won't. Uh, <laughs> Simon and I last met... This sounds quite pretentious, but hey, I'm military director. <laughs> yeah. What else would you expect, it's right? Good. It's a good story. Yeah, yeah. Simon and I last met in person in Barcelona yeah. in 2011, <laughs> uh, where uh, we've known each other for about 10 years, and uh, we were catching up uh, on this and that. He was running a playwriting workshop, and he said, "Mate, I've just got this job adapting <laughs> this particular book," and I was like, "What book?" <laughs> Uh, and he said, "It's this thing by a guy called Mark Haddon called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime." I've got no idea what to do. <laughs> it's, it's, and I was like, "Yeah, it's a kind of unadaptable book. You know, it's in the first person. There's not a huge amount of change." Uh, and then about two days later, I saw him again, and he was like, "I think I've cracked it. I think I know how to do it." This how is to- what
1: conversations with Dr. Mead can do
0: to the playwright's imagination. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So what on earth did you do, Simon Stevens? How did you adapt the wow. unadaptable book?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Well, um, it was. I think, I think it's impossible to talk about the adaptation without talking about the conditions of adaptation. Actually, the truth is that uh, I adapted it because I was asked to by Mark Haddon. (laughs) Me and Mark Haddon made friends with each other. We were both on attachment at the National Theatre studio, which is a kind of beautiful resource for artists of all elements of the theatre world, uh, adjacent to the National Theatre in south of London. Um, He was there to try and get his head around playwriting, because he's clearly a significant and successful novelist and short story writer and children's writer... And I was there for a year just bumming around and meeting people, really. And, and we were, you know, were men of a similar age. And we liked similar taste in music. We're kind of both fathers. Uh, we grumbled about the coffee machine and how terrible the coffee was. And a, and a complaint became a conversation, which eventually became a friendship. And you know, I read the stuff that he was writing for theatre. He wrote a beautiful play called Polar Bear. Uh, which was eventually produced at the Donmar Warehouse. Um, he was very kind about the stuff that I was writing. And about two years after we met, he rang me to say um, to ask me if I'd adapt *Curious Incident*. Um, he'd been approached a hundred times for the stage rights of that novel. Um, and when he was approached by the producers of the musical *Godspell*, <laughs> to see, <laughs> to see. <laughs> To see if they could turn it into a musical. He decided that eventually he was gonna have to allow it to be produced and he wanted it to be done in the way that he he approved of. And he he really liked my stuff, you know. He was very kind about it. He he his you know, normally normally my plays have a tremendous kind of tone of violence and brutality and a lack of hope (laughs) and kind of a a kind of flint and ugliness that that makes me really happy. (laughs) And I kind of secretly think that Mark's got that as well in his writing. And our conversations about the novel had all been about how it wasn't necessarily an unapologetic, euphoric celebration of this boy's imagination. And I think because he, I think the danger with that novel is it can be read as being sentimental. And I think he thought, if there's one playwright in the world, (laughs) he would not let it be sentimental. It was that bugger Stevens. So uh, we met. He was really exemplary. He said, if you ever want to ask anything, just ring me, and I'll I'll ring you back straight away. Uh, If you want to just get on with it, do it in your own time. I did it for three reasons. I did it to see if I could do it as a technical exercise in adaptation, because I'd never adapted anything before. I did it because I liked him uh, and because I wanted to m- please him. And I did it because, you know, I've got three kids and, and, and you know, really, they're getting older now, so it's not so much of an issue. But for a long time, my children really couldn't come and see my plays. It'd be really, really, really inappropriate. For, and I just, wanted, I just wanted to be able to bring my children to the theatre. Uh, so I wanted something that my daughter could come and see. So I said yes. And I spent... A couple of years mulling on it, a couple of years thinking about it. Um, and, and I think that's important. I was talking to the... We, we met some writers that, uh, on, on Monday and Tuesday, and I was talking about the importance of, of mulling, and the, the, importance of, the importance of thinking about things and not, r- not racing into work. Um, I did two things technically. The first thing I did, um, the, the, the chronology of the novel... Is, is absolutely atomized, so it goes backwards and forwards in time, which is an interest of Marx. He does it in everything he writes. So I, just, I made a list of the events that happened and I put them in chronological order, just so I had ownership of the events. I think there's a real difference between the work of a novelist and the work of a dramatist. I think a novelist deals in reflection and thought, memory, observation, idea, and articulating that linguistically. I think a dramatist deals with an event and behaviour... And so I had to separate the beautiful brain of Christopher Boone from stuff that actually happened and stuff that he did. And So that was the first thing I did. And then the second thing was I went through the novel and I transcribed all the direct speech. uh, Because unusually for a novelist, Mark has a dramatist's eye for when people speak. In Mark's books, people speak because they're trying to do things. And I built a script out of that transcript in combination with the list of events, and built it around those things. And then I had the epiphany, which is, I think, what I was talking to you about in Barcelona. You know, the book is a book about writing a book, and it's written from the imaginary point of view of the writer of the imaginary book. Yeah, It's written from Christopher's point of view, and it's written as though it's Christopher's book that he's writing for school. I'm sure if you're clever, you're really clever, you probably know the adjective that describes that type of book perfectly. I always want to say that it's an epistolary, but it's not. No, it's not. Epistolary is about letters. It's about letters. I don't know what it is. Diegetic. It's diegetic, is it? (laughs) 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 Ladies and
0: gentlemen, Dr. (laughs) Mead.
1: So it's a diegetic book. It's a diegetic book. I'm going to use that. Because
0: Aristotle said there's two differences in storytelling. And that if it like in epic poetry, which is the storytelling form. Because yes. when he wrote the poetics he was trying to divide between, you know, why a poem's different to plays. Yeah. And poems are about story. But theatre is about mimesis. It's the oh, you know, it's the
1: I love you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's a book.
1: And the, the one the one I always talk about is the world Dow's beautiful book, the BFG. Which is, which is a diegetic book in disguise. Mm. And at the end of the BFG, it's a story about this huge giant and this little girl. And the little girl teaches him how to speak and, and language. And at the end of the book, she, you know, he tells the story of their adventures. And at the end of the book, she says, and uh, he says, and then Sophie taught me to read and to write. And she told me that I should write the story of my life. And so I did. And you've just finished reading it. And it's so beautiful. And, and Curious Incident is written from Christopher's point of view. And what struck me was, what was interesting about the novel were the people who read Christopher's book and in fact there are only three Christopher reads it himself but the last thing Christopher Boone is ever going to do is stand on stage in front of strangers and tell the story of his life so he couldn't be the narrator but it felt like we needed a narrator to get his brain out the second reader of the book was was his father Ed but when Ed reads it everything is so hot for him because he's reading his son's secrets that it would become a very very difficult tone to manage but the third reader is his teacher who's a very small character in the novel but she reads it like she reads it she reads his book from the same point of view as we read Mark's novel with a sense of wonder and awe and astonishment about the beauty and sadness of Christopher Boone's mind and I kind of thought probably around the time I was in Barcelona I was like fuck she should narrate it and it should be a play about teaching actually and it's a play about a relationship between a teacher and a student. So she became the narrator. And once I cracked that, I wrote it really quickly. So it was a long period of mulling, a little bit of technical work, and then an epiphany in Barcelona with Dr. Mead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Marianne Elliott was also involved in this kind of story change. Yeah,
1: she came in le- No, 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 she came in later. Okay. Mauser came in later. Marianne came in later. Uh, in my memory, at least. Memory's a tremendously unreliable tool. But in my memory, I was writing it in secret without telling anybody. You know, I told my agent I was doing it, but I didn't take a commission for it. I, you know, I told my wife I was doing it, and I told Mark I was doing it. <laughs> would been, you know. But I didn't really tell anybody else. What I did was I wrote a draft and then kind of like surreptitiously sent it to Marianne. But all the time, I just thought, if there's one director who has the capacity to stage this play with the, the, uh, the kind of imagination that you need to stage it with, but also a sense of democracy... You know, because Marianne's work is, is populist, or it's mm. popular without being populist. She mm. cares deeply about the audience.
0: So and Marianne's the director of She's the War Horse. director
1: of Warhorse, which you'll have maybe seen here. She cares, and she's directed Port and uh, Harper Regan, two of my earlier plays. Um, I, I secretly wanted her to direct it all the time. I just didn't tell her about it. And then I kind of like very cunningly Slipped her the script. I kind of said, "I've been doing this thing, Mazza. Would you have a? I, I, it might be a bit shit. Would you have a look at it for me? Because uh, I'd value your thoughts." And and kind of knew that she'd probably go for it. And she and she said, and very quickly she she met me in a bar where she was watching my play Punk Rock and said, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to direct it, we've got to do it at the National, I don't want to do it anywhere else, we've got to do it, I've, I've, I've told Nick, he said we're not allowed to do it, but he's going to read it and then we're going to do it. Actually, <laughs> do you know, you know what, what's, really, what's really interesting, Everybody, when people talk about the stories of productions, because generally people want, talking about theatre uh, want to celebrate the, the beauty of theatre, they tend to talk about the importance of people saying yes to collaborations. You know, it's the classic improv technique, isn't it? That You should only ever say yes in an improv. Mm-hmm. The story of Curious Incident has kind of been a story of a lot of people saying, nah, that ne- <laughs> never worked. That never worked. So I gave it to Marianne and said, I've, I've, I've written the adaptation. And she was like, really? You shouldn't really do an adaptation of a novel. I'll read it, but I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> And then she gave it to Nick Heitner, and he was like, mm, "Not sure that the National Theatre is the right place for adaptations of popular novels. I'll read it because it's you, Marianne, but I don't think it's going to work." <laughs> and, and it's kind of just been a series of people saying, "Yeah," and then going, "Yeah, all right, this might work." And um, That kind of level of faith, and eventually, I, yeah, the level of faith that I had in Mark, and you know, as a kind of atheist, secular thinker the the theatre is the one forum that allows me to exercise faith. And again and again, that exercise has been rewarded. So, you know, eventually, I managed to take my daughter. She only really wanted to meet the puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a puppy in it, all right? I've just ruined it. If you've not seen it, there's a puppy. comes on at the end, everything's fine. (laughs) 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 Sorry, guys. (laughs) Forget that. There goes it's Melbourne season. Exactly, Sorry. (laughs)
0: I'm mean, just, just pursuing this idea because we were discussing it the other day. Just in, just leaving curious for a minute because I'm yeah. sure you might have questions about it later Great. on. Great, but you've also done, uh, you've also done a version of Ibsen or Chekhov, and you were clear to say to differentiate between adaptation yeah. and a version. What do you mean? I've by done that?
1: five versions now. I've done a uh, Jan Foss's I Am the Wind. Henry Ibsen's Doll's House, Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, uh O'don Von Horvath's Casimir and Caroline, and then Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera, which is opening next spring at the National Theatre in London. Come along. Uh, or watch it on NT Live or whatever. Um, for me, the writing of a version is, uh, involves me... You know, one of the things... Is, well, you've directed. Have you directed? You've directed. You're one of the great joys about being a director or being an actor, which is something that playwrights don't get, is you get to live for a while in the imagination and the brain of another artist. And I've talked to my director friends about that. That's what they kind of say they really cherish. If you're directing a Shakespeare play, for a period of time you get to inhabit Shakespeare's skull, or the various skulls of different people that were synthesised in Shakespeare. Um, you know, as a playwright, you tend to only live in your own imagination. And eventually that is, it's like a sponge that can be wrung dry... A version, um, technically, a version is uh, when a, theater, a producing theatre, normally in London, but one occasion in Manchester, want to do a production of a play that wasn't written in the English language, and they want to stage it in the English language rather than the language it was written in, they can ask various different people to do a translation. They might ask quite an academic translator... Often, those academic translators have a great fidelity to the original language but not necessarily a great understanding of how theatre works. And Because language works differently on stage than it does on the page, I think it's a more tricky task capturing the dramatic essence of a writer's intention as opposed to the linguistic essence. So the second thing you can do is you can get a dramatist to write a translation but it's unlikely they'll be able to speak. Norwegian or Russian or German. So what you do is you get somebody to translate the play from the source language into the literal language and then get some dramatists to translate it from literal English to acting. And that's what I do when I'm doing a version. But my interest is, because my interest is in getting inside the imagination of another artist, I tend to be very, very loyal and really stick to the kind of essence of of what I understand the play to be. Like doing a version, it's like, it's kind of like a prolonged, it's like a prolonged kind of uh, type. You know when you've seen a film or you've read a book and, and somebody's trying to get you to capture the essence of it and say, what's it like? And actually they give you a long time to do that. For me, writing a version is, is about that. It's like I read The Cherry Orchard and it astonishes or moves or destroys me and I want to find a way to astonish or move or destroy other people. Uh, in the way that I've been destroyed by Chekhov. So it's a real fidelity to that. Doing an adaptation, which I've only really done the once, uh, at least once on stage, um, you're taking something from one form and adapting it into another form. So it starts off as a novel, and then you're turning it into a stage play. So it's a very different technical thing. With the versions, I love the versions because every thought is linguistic for me. You know, I keep the. I don't have to invent characters. I don't have to invent uh, structure. I don't have to invent action. All I have to do is get the language right. And normally, in my own writing, langu- my relationship to language is very instinctive. I never really think about what verbs I should choose. I just kind of go, "Fuck it, let's go." <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but with with an adaptation, with an adaptation, the in the adaptation of Curious Incident, most of the language is Marx, actually. Mm. I remember telling, uh, I, went with, I went with my 13-year-old, my 12-year-old at the time, to see the play and there was a friend of mine there and I was telling this to my friend, I said, I only invented about 20% of the words in it and my 12-year-old said, yeah, you wrote the swear words. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually not true, I, I, I'm, I you know, Mark's, Mark's a potty-mouthed fucker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you, um, get it, you, get, you get the biggest laugh though, was that your line?
1: Uh, w- okay yeah. Uh, that was my line. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. It's. Um, I mean, that's something that was one of Mark's observations about the difference between writing for stage and writing for writing for prose, writing novels. The biggest laugh every night in the curious incident of the dog in the night time. I don't know how many people have seen it, or if anybody's seen it. But um, the biggest laugh every time I've seen it uh, comes uh, at a moment towards the end, the very end of the play, when a character stands up and says. Okay, and sits back down again. And it always brings the house down. And as he said to me, there is no possible way that the funniest line of a novel <laughs> would ever <laughs> would ever be. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> the um but um, what it cuts to the quick of the difference between the dramatist and the novelist's work because my work you know, my work is not linguistic. I always say this, I'm not a writer, I'm a write. The G H T is there for a reason. We'll come back to that. For Let's a come back to that. All right. but, but Marshall Mead. All right. All right. <laughs>
0: uh, but to one of the, I remember, so we'll just go backwards in time yeah. from 2011. Great. Back to when you were first kind of getting involved at the Royal Court. Yeah. And I remember you saying that you'd been working as a school teacher and you'd yeah. come up through the Young Writers Program. Yeah. They'd, you'd, they'd done your play, it was a success. Then you'd done, then you'd got a commission. And they decided not to proceed with the commission. Yeah. And one of the criticisms was that you write too well.
1: Yeah. I remember that was re- a really... <laughs> I didn't actually go through the Young Writers' Programme, Interesting. Oh, it was it the, was the Young Writers' Festival. Yeah, yeah I, I was never on... The, they didn't have the Young Writers' Programme at that time. I wrote seven plays before my first professional production, which I think I always try and make that as known as possible because there's a romantic kind of celebration of the first play that lingers in British theatre. I wrote seven plays that I directed myself in kind of like student theatres and pub theatres, fringe theatres in York and Edinburgh, and London eventually, uh, that nobody came to see. But it was a a beautiful thing to do. It was an important thing to do because you learnt the muscle of writing for theatre. I'd write these plays and kind of, you know, get audiences of like four people and and, and one of the four would leave (laughs) halfway through. That's really true. You know, people are always walking out of my plays, but no, I I quite like it, it's quite a nice theatrical moment, but normally nowadays people walk out of my plays because they're really offended by the violence or the swearing, or swearing is often a big thing which dooms me really, as you can tell probably. but, uh, but in those days they walked out just because they were bored and they they just they just had better things to do, uh, yeah. and, you know. And it was a great learning. It was a great 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 way of learning. You know, you learn how to how to entertain an audience or sustain an audience or, or compel them. Um, I wrote a play called Bluebird uh, when I was managing a bar in Hammersmith. Um, and it was a it, it was a kind of strange time. I was I was uh, I was completely skint. I, I was on a barman's wages. I was I was uh, earning absolutely fuck all. But if I stayed late uh, of a night, I could get a free taxi home, paid for by the management. So quite often, for somebody who was poor, I spent an unusual amount of time in minicabs. Uh, and became fascinated by minicab drivers and wrote a play about the night and the life of a minicab driver. They produced it in the Young Writers Festival. They commissioned a new play for me. This was in my first year training as a school teacher in Dagenham in Essex and also the first year of my son's life, my eldest son's life. And wanting to be part of that, wanting to kind of bath him and change his nappy and be around and also planning lessons and marking books and the kind of maelstrom of being a new school teacher uh, and writing this play. Uh, at the, you know, 11 o'clock at night, every night for a year, just doing an hour a night, trying to do something, not wanting to let the theatre down. And then I wrote this play, and they, uh, and, and they, they you know... When the first time they commissioned me, man, I couldn't believe what a commission was. I couldn't believe it. When, when the artistic director of the Royal Court said he wanted to commission the new play from me, I, I understood that it was actually a word, but I didn't know what it meant. Um, and when he said to me, it means that we're going to pay you some money and then you're going to go and write a play and on the understanding that we're the first people you show your new play to. And I I was astonished when he said I didn't have to give the money back. (laughs) I was like, what? I get to keep the money, even if I don't write the play? (laughs) It was really exciting. Um, um, But, but, you know, I did write the play because, you know, there's very few things that I would any claim to, but I do think I work hard. Um, And so I wrote this play. I wrote it at 11 o'clock every night for a year. I delivered it. It was the thing I'd wanted for seven years was to be a professional playwright. And they rejected it. And the reason they rejected it, or one of the reasons they rejected it, was uh, I, I remember that we did a reading of the play, and the director of the reading said to me at lunchtime of the reading, he said, Your problem is, Simon, that you write too well. And I remember thinking that was a surprising problem for a writer to have, <laughs> 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 and, not, and not quite knowing what to make of that. And it was in the course of the following year, the same artistic director who rejected the play also. Uh, asked me to be the resident dramatist at his theatre so that I could give up school teaching, spend more time with my son and learn my craft as a playwright. It was the... One of the most important phone calls I've ever had was the phone call from Ian Rickson saying we'd be our resident dramatist. It was astonishingly moving. I remember it so vividly. I was... At, I, was I, I was in the kitchen at home. He rang up. He said, ''It's Ian Rickson. I want to ask you something on Friday.'' I don't want to tell you what it is. Can you come in after work? <laughs> and I was like, all right, you, you weirdo. <laughs> yeah, 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 You've just rejected my play. I don't know if I do, but all right, I will. Uh, and, and then he rang back about 20 minutes later and said, I've changed your mind. We want you to, I want to tell you what it is. Uh, <laughs> and, right, so, uh, we want you to be the resident dramatist next year at the Royal Court so you could leave school teaching and spend a year learning your craft and come and be part of the theatre and it was a totally life changing moment in the the course of that residency uh, they did the reading of the play which became Christmas I had that strange comment that I was writing too well and also somebody taught me in that year the meaning of the word playwright because I say this a lot and probably you know, if anybody, you know, if anybody's ever met me, I've probably said it to them, even if the context was entirely irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> like watching football together, I'd say, ah, "Yeah, it, we, Man United might be out of the Champions League, but did you know the meaning of the word playwright?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I was, I thought, I thought it was a kind of anachronistic hangover. You know, English is a, the English language is a kind of mongrel language, taking influence from Latin and Spanish and French and Celtic, and I just thought it just mashed up and been spelt wrong. Or Samuel Johnson had got drunk in, the, in a pub in Southwark, <laughs> spelt it wrong in the dictionary, and it kind of stayed. But of course, you know, it's not. The noun write and the compound noun playwright doesn't stem from the verb to write, which can be mined out like that, but it stems from the verb which in the past tense is to wrought. We're not writers, we're rights. And just as a shipwright has wrought a ship, or a wheelwright has wrought a wheel, or a cartwright has wrought a cart, so a playwright has wrought rather than written a play, And the verb to write in that sense means not to write, but to shape or to make. And that's my job. I'm a shaper or a maker. I'm not a person of letters. I don't belong in a bookshop. I'm a person of theatre. I belong in a rehearsal room. I think. It's why I'm shit at crosswords. (laughs) 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 And why I didn't know the meaning of
0: the word diegetic, which I will remember now. Okay, but also dig this. Yeah. So the word text, which we think of often in, you know, if you're in performance culture, it's yeah. the enemy of The what enemy of performance, yeah, exactly. But actually text comes from the Latin textere, which is the infinitive, which means to weave. Who knew, right? Oh, because that's good. Because texting is about weaving together. That's good. Yeah, okay, next workshop. Text-based theatre. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to yeah. nick that, mate. All right, yes. all right.
1: I'm going to so, pass it off as my own. In,
0: in <laughs> just like the idea of making the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the teaching thing, yes. I'm wondering in a lot of those early plays of yours, yeah. one of the things that's so beautiful about them, that's so poignant and well-observed... Thank you is that you often capture that horrible transition, or whatever it is, the change, from being a child into an adult. Right. And is it from being a teacher? Is it from being that close to young people? Or is it something you remember really closely yourself? I think
1: it's probably a synthesis of both of those things. Certainly when I was uh, in my residency year at the Royal Court, I'd just come out of being a school teacher and working in Dagenham, which is a predominantly working class area of Essex and the East End of London. teaching kids between 11 and 18, who were difficult, frustrating, exasperating, but massively human, with a profound sense of justice, capable of incredible wit and tenderness and fragility, and who broke my heart on a daily basis. And I was just moved by this body of young people, really deeply moved by them. And then I spent a year in the residency at the Royal Court reading plays, which would often have young people in, and just coming across again and again this frustration that the young people portrayed in the plays that I was reading were absolutely nothing like the young people I'd been working with. You know, quite often you'd get teenage characters who would come on stage and not say anything, let alone not have the capacity to talk with any of the wit or humanity or, uh, you know, range of the young people that I was working with as a school teacher, and I just wanted to tell their story and to honour honor them. And, and, and that sustained me through several plays, working with those kids in Dagenham, working with young offenders in prisons, and working with prisoners. That impulse of trying to stage the humanity in a theatre, trying, trying to put into a theatre the humanity which is often not seen in that theatre. To put on the stages the stories of people whose lives were often kept away from the theatre that felt politically quite important to me, coming out of coming out of coming out the experience of school teaching. But probably there's a whole load of mess of my own kind of shit in there as well, you know, of growing up in Stockport, a suburb of Manchester. I think growing up in a suburb is really good for artists, especially if it's a, especially if the city on the edge of the suburb is quite compelling, because it's quite an interesting, dramatic position to be in, to know that there's a world over there and you can reach it. You know, to grow up on the end of the bus route from Manchester, knowing that in Manchester with like the Smiths and the Stone Roses and all this amazing music. But I was in a kind of shit, semi-detached house in, in Heaton Moor, was dramatically charged. You know, Ivanhoe, where I'm staying at the moment, it's kind of, it's kind of a bit like Heaton Moor. I tell you, there are, gonna, there are gonna be great playwrights coming out of Ivanhoe. You know, I promise you, I promise you, there'll be some teenagers somewhere thinking, why is everything happening over there? And, uh, and, and they'll, be great. they'll end up being great artists. It's very good. We should all raise our children in suburbs. If we want our, if we want our children to be artists, we shouldn't surround them with a theatre life or an artist life. We should take them to the suburbs and make them bored because boredom is really, 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 really conducive to creativity. Uh, and also as a father, you know, as, um, I think quite often artists work out of fear, don't they? Uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think quite often we, we write stories about about the things that terrify us in order to make sense of those things and have ownership of them. And there's very few things in my life more frightening than becoming a parent and raising a child and then watching this child go out into the world. You know, Now as the older I get, my fear tends to be for the lives that my children will inhabit and the lives they're going to live. And dramatically there's something really charged about that. As it happens, my three children are much better at actually the mess of being alive than I am, which is quite good. So, um, so the only real value is that I've been able to imagine horrible things happening to them and actually they've done fine. <laughs> they've been fine. So that sits in Heron's port and even punk rock, you know, which is a much later play. And imagining, imagining the difficult things my children will have to live through, even if in the end they didn't have to live through any of them and they were just fine.
0: Um, the, there is a marked gear change in your work and I used to contend that it was when you came to Interplay. <laughs> So I used to run a festival for young playwrights and there was always a fight between the young playwrights, especially if they were from Germany Mm. and from England and it would always be about stage directions Uh, and Simon came to World Interplay, which was for young playwrights from around the world, with the delegation from the Royal Court, uh, who I'm pretty sure got into a fight with a lot of German playwrights around (laughs) stage directions, you know, there's a certain school of playwriting that you have lots of stage directions or at least certain key stage directions. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the British playwriting, if you think Pinter, you know, you're thinking about those stage directions, they're absolutely crucial for certain moments. Yes. And a lot of the German playwrights are like, ridiculous. Yeah. You know, that's not the act of theatre, that's a literary form. You English writers are rubbish. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and they would say that. Yeah. Um, and you've got to do it in the body of the text itself, you know, in the, in the actual, st- the utterances on stage. I think that, I mean, and, yeah, when you started to, you know, around 2005, yep. less so with Motortown, but then more into something like pornography. Yeah. There's a substantial shift in your work, and I, think, I know that it's working with Sebastian, too. Yeah,
1: I, th- I think, I, I mean, you know, I, there's many, many things I would credit you for. <laughs> but there were other people involved in that, In <laughs> you know. The, um, I, I was really fortunate in about 2003, 2004 to start having my plays produced in German theatres. Specifically fortunate to work with the... Uh, the, the Swiss-Deutsch director, uh, Sebastian Nubling, who directed the first German-language premiere of one of my plays, a play called Herons. Uh, he directed Herons uh, and then went on to commission a play, which was Pornography, which came here to Melbourne as part of the International Festival. Um, he's become a really important collaborator and has taught me a lot about theatre. What's interesting about that difference that you describe is it actually cuts to the quick of the different function of playwrights in German and English theatre worlds. So the function of a playwright in an English theatre, I think, and it's a a slightly conventional version of it, but it's fundamentally true, is to completely imagine a night in the theatre. And the function of the director and the actors is to stage the playwright's vision. It's very flattering in British theatre. You walk into a British theatre rehearsal room as a playwright and you've got a whole room full of people who are desperately trying to stage your vision. They're normally really sweet to you, and that's really, really good fun because you don't have to make any decisions. You get all the kudos and none of the responsibility. <laughs> it's really, really exciting. The, uh, um, in German theatre, the, the relationship between the performance and the play is very different. You're much more likely in a German theatre to be in a position where the play text, the play the script, is just a starting point for the creation of the director. You know, the first thing Sebastian does when he reads my plays is he cuts out all the stage directions. He might add text from other sources. He might take out entire scenes. He might take out entire characters. And what he's not doing is bastardising my play. What he's doing is he's trying to internalise what I was trying to do and then articulate it in the way that he wants to articulate it to allow himself and his actors and his design team to be as authorial as I was. So it's a much less flattering relationship. But in a sense, a much more creative one. And one that's underpinned all of my plays since. So now I really cherish the conversations that happen with directors. You know, I really cherish the moments where they bring their imagination. I get really excited when they say they want to cut scenes. Not that they ask me to cut them. They're just going to, we're not going to do it. Or, 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 or when they add text. I think, you know, for me, a play text, a play script, the, the, the thing that I write is not, the end product, which has to be staged by a director or actors, but just the starting point of a conversation that might crystallize in a night in the theatre. And for me, the play in the rehearsal room should be a provocation. It should have problems that an intelligent actor has to solve, or an intelligent designer has to solve, or a director has to marshal the solution, not a kind of series of instructions that people follow slavishly. I find it really dispiriting when I go and see productions of my plays in different cities or different countries and it's fundamentally just a version of the original that's not quite as good. (laughs) But nothing more thrilling than going to see a play in another country and it's like, I didn't know that was there. I didn't
0: know that was there. So when Simon, he met uh, the designer of Birdland in London, uh, he gave a fantastic instruction. Hmm. So he did give an instruction. Yeah. But it was a, a pretty exciting one, and, and she, uh, Marg, brought it back to the rehearsal room, which uh, Simon had said, kick the shit out of it and see if it's any good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's really true.
1: I said it to a lot of people. Just attack it. Kick the shit out of it. If it's good, it will be better for doing that. If it's not, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> 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 and if, if the play is not good, it's not going be bene- to benefit from people trying to be gentle around it and pretend that it is good. If it's any good, you should attack the monster.
0: Well, I was having I had the good fortune to uh, interview Michael Frayn a couple of months ago, mm. the author of Copenhagen, yeah. and uh, he was very, <laughs> very a animated. Important writer. Yeah, yeah. very, very yeah. animated backstage about uh, telling me about some of the productions of Copenhagen uh, he's seen of his play, including one where. Uh, Niels Bohr's wife, Margreta, did some fantastic scissor kicks and backward somersaults across the stage <laughs> into a hole uh, where there was a giant typewriter that she would bash whenever one of the monologues got went on for too long. And, um, and he was, I mean, he was fine about it. And one of them, he couldn't actually get to see the show every time he rang up to find if the play was in repertoire. They kept on saying, "Oh, not this season." <laughs> uh, and he eventually caught it by accident. And then he was calling his agent madly at interval, going, I can't meet the director or the actors after the show. Get me out of it. But they're in a small town and couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, and there's a word for it, which is Regis Theater, which yeah. is director's theatre in German. Um, yeah. but, uh, I mean, Regis doesn't necessarily mean having
1: wacky, stupid ideas <laughs> that you crank onto the text which have nothing to do with the original intention. And I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing, I didn't see that production of Copenhagen. And there's part of me that doesn't want to judge it without seeing it. I've been really fortunate in my work in Germany that the directors, whenever they've intervened, have have intervened with uh, integrity and intelligence and imagination and made it better, I think. I think.
0: Um, Just want to give you a little flavour of how hard Simon works (laughs) um, about making things better. So Simon arrived Sunday week back... Um, and, uh, and maybe it goes to the heart of work ethic around playwrights too. Uh, and I thought he was joking when he said he was going to write 7,000 words a day. But Simon wrote 160 pages Monday to Friday last week and uh, wrote a full length play. Idiot.
1: <laughs> I, I, mean, no, I could go on holiday, I could go to the beach, I could have gone to St Kilda, that would have been great. I could have gone swimming, I just wrote a new
0: play. How on earth, yeah. where, how, how is that possible? How can you write seven thousand words of a play a day? I
1: think I think big, I think it's to, I think it I think it I think it is best answered by a consideration of the question of what is the what is the what are you doing when you're actually writing dialogue? And for me, the process of writing dialogue in a play is not an exploration, in the way that it is with a lot of writers a lot of writers will talk very beautifully about how when they sit down to write dialogue and to write a play they know nothing about what's going to happen so that each line is a moment of discovery my friend and mentor and hero Robert Holman talks about writing in that way and he'll say every day he'll sit in front of his typewriter he writes on a typewriter and he'll try and get the characters to talk to one another and he won't know what they're going to say or what's going to happen next and sometimes he'll be staring at the typewriter for hours in agony and trying to get them to talk, and he'll only type when he knows they're telling the truth. It's very beautiful, quite a romantic image. It's very different to what I do. For me, the essence, the muscular essence of my plays has always come in the planning and the thinking. For me, you know, the reason I can write 160 pages of a play is because I've spent the last 18 months thinking about what the fuck I'm going to write in this play. It's 18 months of agonising. 18 months of mulling and re- and doing hard thinking. You know, I've really thought hard about this play. I've thought harder about this play than any play I've written before. Uh, it, it's a play which is a Faust story about somebody who sells his soul to the devil. And I spent a huge amount of time thinking about what, uh, what the devil is. Is that me? Is that me, Josh? Yeah, sorry, Josh. That didn't help probably me doing that with my finger, did it? <laughs> um, I spent 18 months thinking about why somebody would sell their soul to the devil, uh, and then and then reading a lot of research, reading different versions of the Faust story, you know, re- reading Bulgakov for the first time, reading Dante for the first time, watching horror movies, watching The Exorcist and studying how that works, watching The Omen and studying how that works, meeting priests, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a kind of secular atheist. I never went to church in my life, apart from for weddings and shit. The, uh, to go and speak to a priest about what God is or what the devil is or what hell is or what heaven is was extraordinary. Synthesising all of that, walking endlessly around London, the city where the play is set, trying to excavate the Faustian pact that London has made with itself. And it all comes into a kind of body of notes which I distill and distill and distill over the course of three weeks before I came out here. So the point with the document that I brought out here was a kind of 18 page description of what the play is going to be with every scene described, every character described, every action described. So it wasn't that I was sitting down like Robert Holman making shit up every morning. I knew what was happening in those scenes, and I knew that if I wanted to write the play last week, and I did, I wanted to, because I've not written anything all year. I mean, I've been thinking about this all year, but I've not written anything all year. I had five days to do it. I knew exactly how many scenes I needed to write each day, how many pages that would involve, how many words that would involve, I didn't know it was going to be 7,000 words. I normally don't do word count, but I was interested. I knew how many scenes I needed to write. And I sat down to do my job, you know. When I was a barman, I, I prided myself on being a good barman. I stocked the fridges properly. I, you know, it, the, I didn't leave an empty fridge for the barman the next day. I cleaned the bars properly. When I was a school teacher, I worked hard at teaching as well as I could. And I was sometimes good and sometimes not good. But I tried. And as a playwright... I'm so lucky, you know. My life is so fortunate. I get to come to bloody Melbourne to travel the world and speak to people about my job. That's an exquisitely moving thing to happen. I get to go to cities I would never have been to to meet the most extraordinary people. I get to spend time with actors. I fucking love actors. They're the most imaginative, ferocious, brave, subtle thinkers I, to speak to people like you, you know, people, dramaturgs, whose brains, who know the meaning of the word diegetic without <laughs> having to look it up. You know, it's, I'm so fortunate. The only responsibility I've got in the face of all that fortune is to do my bloody job, actually. So
0: I would never have let myself come to Australia and not written the play. And um, We were talking in one of the workshops this week and. and uh, Simon said, uh, a beautiful thing, you know, often we get down about the place of art in the community and does it, is it really valued by anybody and, you know, you're a playwright and that's great and you're working hard and it's good to have a good work ethic yeah. but ultimately, you know, it's not a huge audience. What's the value of all that? Yeah, it's a marginal uh, art form. And one of the kind of great benefits is you're able to chat to some pretty extraordinary well, one, people. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the most be- one of the most beautiful things that's happened in my working life in the last five years was getting to know a playwright called Edward Bond I don't know if people are, who are kind of interested in theatre or the history of theatre might have heard of Edward Bond. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a an exquisite playwright whose play Saved literally changed the laws of England, you know. Um, and uh, he's he he's written about 15 of the most significant plays of the 20th century. We revived Saved at the Lyric Hammersmith, where I'm an associate, uh, and he was a, he was present for rehearsal, and um, and be, and you know he kind of. He's, he's a funny fucker, actually. <laughs> yeah. He was very kind to me, but very suspicious. The first time he met me, I was going to interview him in a situation like this. And he didn't want me to interview him. He really said, I don't, want, I don't want you to interview me. I want the assistant director to interview me. I'll talk to the audience without an interviewer. I don't want you to do it. Uh, and then he realized that I'd written a play called Motortown. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that was good. That was like the only good play of the century. He so said, I know he's like, that's the only, the only playwright the royal court's done, taken seriously this century. OK, you can interview me. So I went to meet him to talk about the interview. and went to meet him to talk about a run-through of Saved. And I was going to say something. And I'm quite a gesticulatory person. You know? So I was going to answer a question. I wasn't actually going to answer a question. I was going to complicate a question. I did a gesture like that. And he turned to me and hit my hands. And said, don't answer the question. The question is all we have. It was an extraordinary moment to be physically assaulted by one of my heroes within, <laughs> within, within kind of five minutes of meeting him. But actually, you know, he, 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 got, he, he became gentler as time went on. There was a really beautiful moment. He became quite fond of me. I was sitting having a cigarette on the balcony of the theatre and he came over, walked across. It was the opening night of a play called Three Kingdoms. He walked across and I thought, oh, Edward's going to come and wish me luck for the opening night. And he came over to me and took my cigarette out of my mouth threw it on the floor and stamped on it and said smoking's bad for you and walked off. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, Buddy but I thought you are going to wish me luck for my opening night. And then he came back and said, I'm sorry, that was so rude of me. It's your opening night tonight, you should have a cigarette. Pick it up, light it. <laughs> 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 and I was like, that's Edward Bond, he's telling me to pick the cigarette up and light it. All right, so I picked it up and lit it and he did it again. <laughs> <laughs> And then came back and said, No, seriously, there are people I care about who've died from smoking. I don't want you to be one of them. I was like, Bloody hell. All right, Edward, That leave me. One of the things he said to me, though, which you were trying, the thing you wanted me to say, which I haven't said yet, but I'm about to say now, um, he, he was talking about, um, uh, about, exa- about the importance of the function of playwriting. For, me, for him, I think it was important that playwrights took their work seriously and the ethical weight of their work seriously. And he said this to me, he said, it's not a coincidence that the culture that first gave us law and first gave us democracy should also be the culture that first gave us drama, which was the culture of the ancient Greeks. So what the Greeks understood was that it's not possible to be uncertain about law or to allow democracy to carry contradiction. You can't kind of vote for somebody and then change your mind and vote for somebody else. Something can't be kind of illegal. It can't be a bit illegal. But to be human is to be uncertain, and to be human is to be contradictory. And the Greeks knew that, and they they knew that they needed a public space that could explore and excavate the contradictory and uncertain nature of the human being, and that that was the function of theatre. The function of the theatre was to excavate the contradictory uncertainty of the human being. And he he went on to argue that it's only by properly committing to the serious function of drama that you can properly have democracy in law. I thought that was a bit hyperbolic, to say you can't have democracy without drama. (laughs) And then I looked at the way in which Hollywood and New York theatre has homogenised the dramatic function, and then look what's happened in the US democracy in recent years, and I thought, fucking hell, Edward. You might be right <laughs> that our work, you know, and I've been a school teacher. I've taught 14 year olds how to spell. I've introduced 15 year olds to Harper Lee and to Seamus Heaney. I've, and that's felt important. Sometimes swanning around at the Tony Awards has, has felt fun, but not that important. And it's an important galvanizing reminder from Edward that we have a function that matters too.
0: Okay, so you want to start? thinking up your questions, people. That's your five-minute warning. (laughs) I've got one more question for him and then I'll throw it to you guys. Great. Uh, Which kind of is a similar path in a way. Yeah. Uh, It's around the romantics and the idea of what they've done to the idea of a writer that you yeah. can swan around, think <laughs> about trees and...
1: Take loads of opium.
0: Yeah, a, a, and
1: <laughs> Which is what I was doing in Ivano last week, yeah. if anybody noticed. <laughs> a funny smell coming from the... <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I wasn't really. Honestly, I wasn't really. Don't arrest me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the Randics did something particularly to the idea of the playwright. Yeah. And that the, the playwright is a, is a solitary figure. The writer is alone. Mm. And they come up with ideas on their own. And they're these geniuses who turn up and we want to kind of deliver their vision for them. Mm. Um, And it seems a terrible, terrible thing to have done to playwriting, (laughs) which is entirely about community and about not only writers coming together, but that it's absolutely critical to be in the theatre. And I'm really interested in your kind of institutional positions in different companies across the theatre landscape in London.
1: It's been really fundamental to me throughout my career. You know, I started off as the resident dramatist at the Royal Court and then for five years I was the writer's tutor in the Young Writers Programme. Those five years were as fundamental as anything else. If for no other reason than I was in the staff meetings all the time, I saw the mess of opening a theatre, I saw what it's like when the front house lift wasn't working, you know, or when people in development weren't getting paid, paid, uh, weren't getting paid enough, or the box office knew that we had to raise the ticket prices. I knew about the politics that underpin an organisation like a theatre. And it was inspiring for me that my work, rather than existing in some kind of romantic idyll outside of a working building, was an integral part of the working building. It was really, really essential. Um, And then to take that work ethic into a rehearsal room where you see the importance of a stage manager, you know, you see the importance of a production designer, where you see the kind of work of a rehearsal room. What's not happening, you know, I've, I've, I've read my own plays, yeah? I've seen what my plays look like. They're words on a on a page, they're dead, they're inert. If they have a vitality or a life, it's with what other people do to them. Whether that other person is the stage manager, whether that other person is the actor or the designer, You know whether that other person in a weird way is the usher who's guiding somebody to their seats to create an environment that is as good an environment as you can possibly get or the sound guy who is somehow wrestling with the politics of what you do when a guest speaker's microphone is a bit shit and they've not put it on properly how do they do that gracefully without treading onto the stage and those people the Joshes of this world are the most fundamental people you know the dramaturg who reads a play and says it's actually about that not about that you know The remarkable thing about theatre is we have the potential, collectively, to be more than the sum of our individual constituent parts. It's why theatre's always an optimistic art form. It's why theatre's always a a left-wing art form. It's why you can't have right-wing playwrights. Because theatre is not built around the notion that the individual can ever thrive in isolation. It's not built around the notion that there is no such thing as society, which is what Margaret Thatcher said. It's built around the notion that society exists and is real and is tangible and is urgent, and our responsibility is to contribute to that society and to refine it.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: All
0: right, on, yeah? (laughs) Uh, So we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, If you do have questions, I did give you a warning. So uh, uh, you were first, then yes. Yeah, Uh, I have to repeat the question. Did everyone hear it? Uh, But I have to repeat it anyway for the podcast, which is your plays are often about taboo subjects. Mm. How do you balance the desire to be produced with the idea to uh, provoke? So is that a fair?
1: Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. It's a good summary of the question. Um, I kind of don't. The thing is, I never really think of my plays as being taboo. I don't really kind of sit down and think, oh, I'm going I'm to write a play about the thing that nobody would dare me to write a play about. I, I, I think the simplest way that describes my relationship to my work is, is to think of... Um, I always love the... Do you ever see the movie Big? <laughs> you ever see that movie Big with Tom Hanks in? Tom Hanks plays a toy designer, and he's asked... There's a great scene where this girl from the toy design company goes on a date with him and goes back to his room, and he's very excited because he's a child in an adult body but he thinks that she's come over for a sleepover, <laughs> which is really great. And she asks him where he gets his ideas for toys from, and he says he just wish, he thinks of the toys that he wishes existed in real life and don't, so he has to invent them in order for them to exist. And I think that's the same with me with my plays. I don't try and write taboo plays. I just write the plays that I wish other people had written so I could go and see them, and, then, and, and they haven't, so I have to write them. Um, and, and it happens that, as an audience member, I value work that is problematic or provocative or difficult. That's what gets me excited. If I get disappointed with the theatre, it's when it feels like the gesture of the theatre is to congratulate me or to tell me something I know and not to trouble me. In terms of getting those produced, I live in London. I'm really fortunate. I'm really fortunate. I live in an incredibly fertile producing culture for playwrights. We have five theatres that are uniquely committed to new plays as well as three touring companies that are committed to new plays, as well as theatres throughout the country staging a considerable amount of new plays. There's there's never been a theatre culture that leans more into the playwright than the one in London. And it's difficult to come to another city and say that, but it's true. And the only thing I would say is it wasn't always the way in London. You know, the Royal Court didn't always exist. The Royal Court was invented, and it was invented by directors who wanted that type of theatre, and the thing that, you know, I remember saying in Manchester kind of ten years ago, don't complain about the fact that Manchester hasn't got a vibrant new writing culture. Invent it, because that's what happened in London. And if Melbourne is a frustrating new writing culture, change it and invent it and get hold of the theatres and own them. It's by, and not, I, don't, I don't know enough about Melbourne to know, you know, anywhere that there's Dr Mead, must be pretty healthy. But um, <laughs> I've just been very fortunate that it happens that people running theatres in London have an interest in work which is similarly challenging and provocative, and that they're all caught. That was opened, you know, the verb in the Royal Court's kind of thinking is uh, what's essential to their work is that they make work that challenges in either form or content, that's what it's for and I, I, I've been very fortunate to exist in the same city as the Royal Court I think uh,
0: There was a question, yeah uh,
2: First of all uh, I've been wanting to say this for two years thank you for incident. Oh man, that's kind of you You found a way to make it not blatantly dark or too cutesy Oh, great. Managed to dramatise it in a way. And I've only read it. Like, I've mm. never seen a production of it. Just from reading it alone, it's it's moving in a way that I can't really describe. Sometimes. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you so well, much. Beautiful much.
1: thing to say. Thank you very much.
2: Um, as for the question, mm. um, the play is <coughs> unintentionally, or maybe intentionally, become the autism narrative for today. Like, you've blown rain, man. Um, but when people think about autism now, Christopher Byrne, through the play as well yeah. as through the book, has become us has reference point yeah. for a lot of people. Yes. And while that has its like ups and downs Yeah. Um, as as a feature point, it is really a beautiful thing to have. Right. In writing the play itself, yeah, how did you feel your change to autism or the autistic community went about? Like I assume you went from a place of knowing something to a place of knowing something more. Okay.
0: Like, how, how did you deal with that? Cool. So I have to repeat the question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Don't
1: forget to repeat the bit where he said it was really good. <laughs> 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 no, you can. No, it's fine. Right. Don't repeat that bit.
0: Insert compliment. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But then you wanted to know about your relationship to the idea of autism. Yes. Uh, so the question is around how did you go about finding out yeah. about autism? Uh, Did you seek to kind of control that narrative? Great. And how did you kind of go on to find
2: more?
1: Very good. I think um, my answer to it, which will be an honest answer, is both, I think, responsible and massively irresponsible. Um, I think uh, Mark Haddon is very interesting because he never uses the word autism or Asperger's in the body of the text of the novel. He says, he said that one of his biggest regrets is that he allowed the people who wrote the The Dust Jacket in the blurb on the dust jacket to use the word Asperger's. It was never in his thinking about Christopher Boone. He was never interested in, re- in creating an autistic character or a character with Asperger's. He just wanted to tell the story of a boy. He never wanted to represent any condition, whether a neurological or psychological or social or anything. He just wanted to tell a story. For him, the play is as much about uh, an angry alcoholic uh, uh, heating engineer as it is about an autistic boy. It's about the father son relationship and it's about Christopher's brain. He, Christopher, he describes Christopher as, a, boi- uh, as a, a, a kind of a boy who uh, he says he's got behavioral problems, uh, but we've all got bloody behavioral problems, Jesus. <laughs> the, um, and, and what I did in the writing of the play was just on a Marx vision. So the Christopher that I created came not from any research into the Asperger's or autistic community. Um, but came from just Mark's vision and trying to dramatize the Christopher that he created. Uh, if I think anything politically about the representation of autism or the representation of Asperger's on stage, is that my understanding of that condition is that it is massively diverse. Not everybody with autism or with Asperger's is good at maths, for example, not everybody is a boy. Um, Not everybody thinks in the way that Christopher thinks. It manifests itself in a huge spectrum of different behaviours and kind of arguably manifests itself in people who would never identify as being autistic or having Asperger's. So, in a sense, the decision to not research it and go, right, I'm going to do the great autistic play, but actually instead of that, to just tell Christopher's story truthfully, um, was as responsible as it was irresponsible. You know, and, and that, I think that's borne out with the work that we've done subsequently in rehearsal and in production to kind of uh, to work with uh, autistic kids or autistic schools or work with uh, you know to bring autistic or uh, Asperger's audiences in I think the thing they relate to is the idea that Christopher is not a totem he's not an emblem, he's a boy and I think that's the most responsible thing that we could do Shit man, <laughs> what am I like? Right, Edward, he's doing Edward Bond was right to smack me for, for, <laughs> for being too gestural. Sorry, Josh. Yeah, go on.
0: Okay, question. Two more, three more? How long we got? Mm-hmm. Mandy, how long we got? Okay, yes. Uh,
2: I was just going to say, um, I had actually taught the book for a while, right. with a number of students, and absolutely loved the book, and then I saw it at NT Live, right. uh, at the Nova Cinema, and wow, well, was astounded by how brilliant it was. But speaking of production, yeah. I then saw a documentary on the television yeah.
0: which described the fact that when we saw it on NT Live, there was a set that was a square with the people sitting on the barriers yeah. and they weren't acting. Yeah. And then on this documentary, I saw that there was another production where there was a wall involved. Mm-hmm. So can you discuss sure. how the changes
1: are yeah, when we originally produced. Oh, the hang on.
0: Yeah. So the question was sorry, about. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So the question was about uh, to kind of cut into your. Had a compliment co- in it as well. Did it? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure she said, explain the difference between the cottage slash dolphin production and the Bro- the West End Broadway production, and sure. that's the yeah.
1: Yeah. When, uh, when we originally produced the play, we produced it in the smallest of the three theatres at the National Theatre, which was then called the Cotterslow, and has now been refined and rebuilt and uh, is called the Dorfman Theatre, named after the person who paid for the rebuild, um, Lloyd <laughs> Dorfman. But isn't he uh, I don't don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we'll never get. We'll never. We'll never answer this question if I answer that question. Right. Um, uh, It was what was important to Marianne, the director of the play, was that she because the play is is the trick of the play, is that just as Christopher Christopher is the author of the fictional book, that we're watching the play of a fictional play. We're watching like the school play of the staging of Christopher's book. And what was important to her was to create a, a, almost like a, a poor theatre aesthetic where it looked like a rehearsal room. And people, the audience would come in and the actors would be on the stage and all the props would be uh, legible and available and you could see them, you could see how they made the show. And incrementally as the show went on it became more and more technological and more and more astonishing. But it starts off like you're watching a rehearsal room production. And that was really integral to her conception of the whole thing. Now, the play was a success. You know, a lot of people... A lot of people love the novel, it, had a, it, it, it sold very quickly because people love the novel. Uh, and it's, it's often taught, the novel's often taught at schools, so there's a lot of demand for the tickets, there's a lot of demand for tickets. Um, and the decision was made to, 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 to revive it, but to not revive it in the Cotterslow, which has necessarily got a turnover of plays, but to, to, to do it in a commercial theatre, and to do it in a West End theatre. Now, the West End theatres are all uh, 19th century or even 18th century theatres. They're all built at a time when the architecture of a theatre was uh, the architecture of a raised stage and a proscenium arch and an auditorium where the audience sat, maybe with one or two or three circles, yeah? It's the classical chocolate box theatre that if you ask a nine-year-old to draw what a stage looks like in a theatre, that's what they would draw, yeah? Um, You can't do the poor school aesthetic in that auditorium, because it just wouldn't work. You've got, instead of 300 people sitting around a stage, you've got 900 people looking at a stage. So Marianne and Bonnie Christie, the designer, and Paulie Constable, the lighting designer, worked to try and make something new. And what was uh, central to, her th- to Marianne's thinking was that you were going inside Christopher's brain, and they became quite excited by the idea that what if, what if you could really make Christopher's brain astonishing from the beginning? So when you walk into the theatre, you're looking at something the like of which you've never seen in a proscenium arch theatre before. You're not looking at a drawing room with a garden leader, with a with sliding door, French windows leading off into a garden yeah. and, stairs upstairs, and stairs leading upstairs. You're looking at the extraordinary visual representation of Christopher Boone's brain. And you build the show out of that. It was basically an attempt to stage the show in a bigger theatre. And it came from their genius more than mine. Cool.
0: Final question? we better get out of here. Yeah.
2: Um, I just wondered, before you hand your work over to other people, if you have a visual sense of what form that takes?
0: Yeah. Uh, So the question was, uh, perhaps extrapolating slightly, when you're writing it, do you see it? Yeah. Uh, And then I suppose kind of the subsequent part of that is when you then see in rehearsal and the different visions, how closely do they accord?
1: Yeah, I think it's... I mean, for me, it's a very conversational relationship. It's important to me, when I'm writing a scene, if I see a scene in my mind's eye, if I'm imagining a scene in my head, what I don't see is a mimetic representation of life. You know, I don't... If I was writing this conversation as a scene, in my mind's eye when I was writing it, I wouldn't see us in this room in Melbourne, having this conversation now, I'd see this conversation staged on the stage of the theatre that had commissioned me to write the play. For me, it's important that plays exist in theatres, and for me, it's important they're written for theatres. It's one of the reasons I like to take commissions ordinarily. Um, So I, I absolutely imagine every entrance and exit. I imagine every scene change. I imagine the underscore... I imagine a uh, costume. I imagine set. And then what I do is I take all the imagination away. So it's written. It's written with a complete imagination that I then remove. And then I pass the script on to a director. And the, and, and the gesture is to exercise their imagination as they try and see the same scene that I'm seeing or see a version of that scene that exists in their head with the same kind of enthusiasm with which I've imagined it. You know, it's like the... Um, I always think the gesture of making theatre is the same kind of gesture as when you see something astonishing in the street and you're with a friend and you want to grab them and go, look, look at that. Can you see that? That's, for me, that's what, that's what theatre's like. And, and, it's, an, it's, an important, and it's, a, it's an important gesture and it's a gesture which is born out of faith in other people, actually. If I was walking with you, Chris, if I was going down the street and I saw something amazing, I'd want you to see it. Yeah, I wouldn't want just to describe it. <laughs> you know, if we saw like an amazing car, or it's a very unlikely thing for the two of us. Yeah. But, you know, there was, because there's that cool car for the art gallery or the LYY right. exhibition, you know, I'd want to grab you and say, Look, to not describe it for you, because I'd have faith that you could see it in the same way that I did. And that if you saw it in the same way that I did, that it might move you in the same way that it's moved me. And that gesture. That faith that people can see the same things that we see uh, has underpinned every decision that I've made as a playwright in the last 15 years uh, and has been endlessly rewarded by directors and actors and designers of immense faith and imagination. I'm a very, very lucky man indeed.
0: We'll leave it there. Thank you, Simon Stevens. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so
2: much. <laughs> that was great. That was yeah. a good man.